You're listening to Brave Not Perfect with Reshma Sajani, presented by Anchor and Girls Who Code. Hey, it's Reshma. Welcome to Brave Not Perfect, where I'm talking to changemakers who have one thing in common. At some point in their lives, they've decided to just jump in and make things better now, instead of waiting until they had all the skills and knowledge. They decided that it was better to be brave, not perfect. This week, we're doing something different, something a little meta. We're talking about data privacy with my friend, Molly Wood. Molly is the host of Marketplace Tech. She was also one of the first female podcasters. She's made it her mission in life to make us a little bit smarter about the repercussions of all the technology that we have in our lives, whether it's our phones, our apps. And I started by asking her, what is the biggest story in tech right now? I mean, the biggest story in tech right now is Facebook, although this is the part where I get to say that everybody else thinks the biggest story in tech is Facebook. I think that the biggest story in tech is digital privacy and data collection and how we're at basically a huge tipping point in the the data economy. Why do you think that that's the biggest story right now? Why are people not like seeing it that way or like paying attention to it in that way? I've actually been saying over and over that I think this is the moment when a whole bunch of frogs are all of a sudden waking up and looking around and going, whoa, I'm in a pot right now and this water is really boiling. Because I think people, you know, for the longest time, sharing and giving up your personal information has been considered the norm. It's it's what you do to get, you know, access to free content online. And it feels like a decent trade-off. And now I think because of the sort of extraordinary political events of 2016, Donald Trump's election, the leave vote uh, in the UK, people all of a sudden went, hey, a lot of the trends that have been happening in the world were totally amplified on social media, like this idea that you could gather data and target ads might be way more than just, you know, trying to sell you a good looking sweater, right? That it's actually crossed over into politics and propaganda and, you know, amplifying and distorting trends that were happening in the real world. Yeah, I felt like with the way that Tim Cook described it, like it's creepy is exactly like how I feel. Yep. And then you look at, you know, this is what the digital economy in the US has been built on. People just sort of cheerfully say that data is the new oil and that, you know, you have to have it because you'd rather have ads that are relevant to you. And nobody, I think, realized the scope, like how far their data was going, how much of it was being collected. And then the fact that it could be used to to influence people's opinions about politics. Right. To elect a crazy man. I said that. You didn't. You know, it went farther than uh, I think people realized. And and so hopefully this is a reckoning where people realize, oh, I shouldn't be so cavalier with my data. This is actually right. something that has value. So can we talk about what kind of data? So like everybody I know is crazy. Like I got to protect my social security number. I got to protect my credit card. Info. What What's the other kinds of data that, every, that people are collecting about us? Everything. <laughs> there was a, an editor of mine recently said that she thinks the like button is the most powerful tool that has ever been invented for digital advertising mm. and, and information collecting. Look, there are, these companies, they know yes, they know your social security number. And when I say these companies, I mean data brokers, I mean Facebook, I mean Google, and I mean any company that even just little app that had access to those databases at Facebook. So they know all your personal information. They might know where you live. They probably know your phone number. But they also know... Uh, what you're interested in. They know your political leanings. They know your gender. They know you know what kind of topics you engage on most. They know what you bought. They know what websites you like to visit. They have sort of a sense of, like, I like to joke that Google could probably build a digital clone of me 
that would interact with people and they wouldn't even know the difference. That's <laughs> between, so scary. Between That's me like so scary. and Goog Molly. Well, then how do you change, like, how do you get people to care? So my niece, right, she's 16. She shares everything. Like, she doesn't even think about it. Do we, I mean, are you finding it hard to, like, convince people right now that we should be more careful? Or do you think people get it after after the Facebook Russia thing? I I hope that they're starting to get it. I think some people are starting to get it, but people definitely don't care enough. They're still saying to me, why should I care about this? I don't have anything to hide. It's not that big a deal. I mean, we certainly as parents, like I had the talk with my son about data sharing, <laughs> that talk, and was like, you can't just, you know, you can't just sign up for anything, any old thing that comes along. You can't just hand over your email address to any old app that wants it, you know, or connect uh, to any service or register. And I, I sort of tried to explain to him that web that, look, when you do this, then they start sending you emails and any email you click on, then that gets sent to some other company that sends you emails like that. And then they, you know, and, and it just, it becomes this snowball that rolls downhill and gets bigger and bigger. And I think if parents care, they can tell their kids, we know that Facebook usage is actually declining, but they're sharing all their, you know, financial transaction data with Venmo. So I'm not sure that's necessarily better. Um, so what's your son say when you tried to explain it to him? It freaked him out. I mean, the the best thing we can do is if you, you know, use the network effect against people, like if you can convince one person how creepy the sharing is, how far it goes, you know, you might think that all you did was buy something on Amazon, but that data gets shared with dozens of other companies and rolled up into a profile about you that's just floating around the web that you can't control. And if you can convince one person that that's true, then they'll tell 10 other people we have to sort of take back our power of con as consumers. I think we get overwhelmed, like we've already lost this battle, but that's not true. Yeah. I mean, I, I also find it like fascinating to see what the millennials are going to say. I mean, I, I definitely think that after so much of the protests against Wall Street and the charges against the banks, you really saw a lot of banks having a hard time hiring talent, right? And everyone said, you know what? I'm not working for Goldman Sachs anymore. I'm going to go work for Facebook. They're the good guys. And that has really changed. Um, over the past year. And so I wonder if like, you're, and you're seeing organization happen amongst the technology companies in uh, the engineering teams. Um, so I wonder whether they're going to be able to put pressure on their companies to change. I think so. I think there will be that internal pressure because you're, you're absolutely right. Like these are, a lot of them are mission driven companies, even the companies you wouldn't think about. Like when you, you know, talk to people who work at Uber, they're, they're not there because they think that, you know, Travis is such a fun bro. Like they're there because right. they think that they can save lives. They can take cars off yeah. the road. They can, you know, transform transportation and make it more efficient and and reduce pollution. All these, you know, good things. And so I do think that there could be pressure from within and that as these companies are kind of growing, you know, this is all really new. They're basically yeah. you know, I think of this industry as being somewhere between 10 and 14 years old. <laughs> like they're just little teenagers, and we're trying to figure out how to tell them what to do. So uh, let's talk about you. So you were one of the first female podcasters. You were doing it way, way back when, 2005. Sorry not to date you. Way back when. Um, no, I'm, yeah. Way back when. I have my moments, Buzzed believe out me. Loud. <laughs> what did you learn back then? I learned so much like I will always be grateful so yes yeah, so we it, you know back in 2005 I was at CNET I was 11 no just kidding um <laughs> I'm it makes me feel so old to think about how long I've been doing this we started a daily podcast called buzz out loud and it just it covered the tech industry and it was supposed to be five minutes long three times a week 
It eventually became every day. It was like 45 minutes long. We did it for six years. And we were, you know, that was such a great time to be talking about technology because it was, that was really new, right? These companies were babies. We were talking about foundational stuff. But what I learned was, because I had come from really traditional journalism, like my first job out of college was the Associated Press, which was not only very traditional journalism, but really removed from the audience. Like some of your AP articles when you're new, especially you don't even have a byline, you know, you never talk to the audience. You're in your journalism ivory tower and you love it. <laughs> and at Buzz Out Loud, I had to get out of my comfort zone. We really interacted with the audience. We were in the forums all the time. We had them on the show all the time. They were leaving us voicemails. And what I learned was the the power of building that community. I call them still like my internet army. They're they're behind, you know, they they protect me on Twitter. They <laughs> come and and listen to whatever show I do and it's just what I learned is that if you're doing it right, then podcasting and and journalism is just a conversation with other smart people and that that you have as much to learn from your audience as they have to learn from you. How many female podcasters are there? Do you know? Range I don't know. Not it's, know it's not, not a lot. lot. It's still pretty techy, you know. And it's it and and like the rest of the tech industry, it's not uh, that well represented. I would hope that it's more than I think, um, but it's not a ton. You think it's because we feel like we have to be like super prepared to do it, and that it's not as like accessible. Right? Like, I need to take a class on being a podcaster before I can launch my podcast kind of thing. <laughs> probably. And I can't ask for a raise. Um, and I can't. <laughs> I think it's probably that. And honestly, it can be really, in all of the ways that it can be hard to be a woman online, it can be brutal to be a female podcaster. I mean, I know people who really, really know their stuff are unquestionably experts in their field who get snotty notes about their voice or whether they're too aggressive with the guests that they have on the show. And... And the, and the just kind of the built-in assumption that they don't know what they're talking about. I have always, almost always had male co-hosts on my podcast. And I am, to this day, having essentially pioneered this field and this, and this, this medium, like, shocked at how often I will get an email that attributes something I said to my male co-host. It happens all the time. Not surprising. All the time. Not surprising. Yep. So how do, how do we democratize it? Like, how do we get more women... How do we get more women listening to podcasts? Because that's the other thing, right? It's like, I think women want to listen to women. I yep. certainly do. Like, I certainly, when I'm listening to my favorite podcast and I don't hear female voices, it it, it annoys me. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And I, I'm going to go find something that feels more inclusive and more like the kind of people I want to hear. Yeah. And I think that we just have to tell women over and over that it's not very hard. You know, that podcasting really is not very hard. It needs to be easier. Like I'm still waiting for the startup that comes along and is basically blogger for podcasting or WordPress. See, I dated myself again. WordPress for podcasting. <laughs> Dear children, before WordPress, there was blogger. Um, but anybody who is enterprising and has a little bit of time can look on forums and look on you know YouTube for how to do it. And so we just have to convince them, like you have something to say. And yeah, all you have to do is turn on a microphone say it and put it out there and there will be somebody who wants to hear it and look and i, I listen i mean to, to everybody who's listening i i when i first was going to launch this you know i'm like give me the top 10 podcasts that i should listen to so i could like learn from them wanted to do my homework thought that i had to sound like you know this person or that person you know our friend jenny was like no don't do that just sound like you and like you know i fell into that same trap thinking that I needed to sound interesting and sound like someone else. And so I think we just have to keep reminding people, you are interesting. 
you know, sound like you, like that's it, you know, have conversations about things that you want to talk about because there are other people who want to listen to that. And that's like the best thing about podcasting is there's no gatekeeper. There's no, you know, there's no green, like green light process where you have to pitch your script to TB or whatever and get it approved. You just put it up there and people will find yeah, it. Yep. You, you, you know, you have to do the promotion for it's not easy to be heard in the sort of huge sea of podcasts, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it if only to just practice talking in front of a microphone so that you sound like you. Totally. So what's like the craziest thing you've ever done for a story? <laughs> mm, one is I jumped out of a helicopter. But Ooh. so what we did was we were trying to recreate a long time ago. There was this commercial it was an HTC one commercial that is a phone before everything became iPhone or Samsung. Um, <laughs> I'm sure HTC is still around, but like dear children. <laughs> So they did this commercial where they did a photo shoot in midair and they had this model and they were like, even flying through the air, you can get great, amazing shots. And so I had this genius producer who was like, that's dumb. We should see if we can re re reproduce that. <laughs> and she goes, I know a guy. And you're like, okay. Yeah. I'm like, all right. That sounds awesome. She's like, I know a guy at GoPro. <laughs> and so we worked with what are called the GoPro stunt team and they set this shoot up for us and they prefer the GoPro guys to they prefer to skydive out of a helicopter because like the the sensation of free fall is way more intense which because you're just jumping from a standstill it's like base yeah jumping. my heart is like dropping to my stomach right now as we speak yeah, yeah that's terrifying I mean when they say that the sensation of free fall is way more intense they just mean like you want to barf a lot more I assume because I have not gone <laughs> out of a plane it was but it was it was both awesome and terrible but I did, we compared the HTC phone with the iPhone for photography. I did get a shot. The GoPro guy, God love him, dressed himself up in a unitard and a feather boa and then jumped off his <laughs> helicopter. And I got this great photo of him in midair and I tweeted it while I was, uh, while the parachute was, while we were gently floating down to earth. Fair enough. That sounds pretty awesome. So I want to ask you, you are, you know, you are one of the first in your field so much of what I'm doing right now is because I feel like I've learned how to be brave like a muscle. Like I constantly get rejected and I constantly fail. Like mm -hmm. how has bravery and perfection played in your life? Yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of everything because you have to, for one thing, when you're sort of pioneering the tech industry, the tech coverage industry, like you're changing it all the time and somebody's always going to yell at you. And especially nerds, you know, like my audience likes to be right a lot. And it has so many times my decision to write a story or pitch a story or, or argue for a line of coverage has had to come down to just a core belief in my news judgment and my own judgment and my own knowledge because there's always going to be so much criticism and, there's a, and, and it's only amplified when you, know, you try to conduct your journalism on Twitter or on Facebook. And I've had to say... Like, no, I know no one's ever done this story before, or I know no one's ever done a podcast like this before, or I know no one's ever done a video show like this before, but I believe that we can do it. And I believe that I am good enough. And I think sometimes for women, that alone is the hardest thing to say. Just like, no, I'm, I'm awesome at this and I need you to trust me. That's amazing. Or, or at least that I'm willing to try. Because I think the thing right. is, is we often talk ourselves out of an idea. Yeah, all the time. I talk myself out of ideas all the time. Or I have a million ideas that I don't do because I'm sitting around, you know, knitting or reading Twitter. But if, <laughs> <laughs> but you do, you kind of have to say, I, I call it like the moonshot. I have found a lot of times too bravery through data. Like 
Write the business yeah. plan, even if you're trying to make a pitch at work, at the job you already have. You know, I, I launched a web show at CNET. It was a thir- like a 30-minute broadcast quality web show. We had never done anything like that before. Every web video was a minute long, and now they're a minute long again. But I wrote a business plan internally and said, this is how much money I think we can make. This is how we can distribute it. And, you know, it landed us a big on-demand distribution deal with Xbox. Like, it was totally worth it. But I, I didn't feel like I was going in there and standing on air. Like, I had done the research. And so much of the time, yeah. that, is, that can be the source of bravery. It's just like, no, I did the, I did the work. Thank you so much, Molly. This was awesome. Reshma, you're the best. Uh, you're the best. <laughs> Thank you for joining me for another episode of Brave Not Perfect. Got a question for me? Send us a note at bravenotperfectpodcast at gmail.com or call in directly via the Anchor app on your phone. Every week, I'll answer questions from listeners like you on topics ranging from women in politics, feminism, education policy, and diversity in tech to what it's like running a company or just being a mom. I want to hear from you. Send me your questions. Until next time, this has been an episode of Brave Not Perfect with me, Reshma Sajani.